Hello friends, Steve here. I am going to admit I am a bit bored of interviewing people. So for this very special episode, I've asked the incredible science communicator Sam Mackay to interview a scientist who does not exist. Now, few clarifications. This scientist doesn't exist and is not based on anybody alive or dead. Rather embarrassingly, after we recorded it, I did Google uh, the scientist, and found out that there are a whole bunch of living scientists who share this name. It's a very common name. This person is not based on any of them. And I think once you find out a bit about their biography, you'll understand that this is in no way a parody of anybody. It is, in fact, a parody of everybody. I've said enough. Enjoy. If no one knows and no one cares, that's the only way you can get away with anything in this world. Hello and welcome to A Life Full of Science. I'm Sam Mackay and today I have the privilege of being joined by Professor Sir Roger Benson, the most famous living 20th century scientist. In his first media appearance since the mysterious disappearance of his wife three months ago on the Zambezi River. Hello Roger and welcome to Wow What a Life Full of Science. Hello Sam. I mean it's absolutely it's such a joy to be able to tell these stories all over again, you know. Um, interesting you um, bring up the wife, of course. Um, Amelia herself was a very talented researcher. Um, and as far as we know, she's still out in the Zambezi looking for the lesser-striped blue piranha, which uh, was long considered extinct, but one turned up in a museum in uh, Hartlepool earlier this year. So she's, she's out there looking for them. I mean, we'll probably see her in about nine months or so, I would have thought. Uh, one can absolutely hope. But the point of today's discussion isn't about Amelia. It's about you and your science. As we begin the process of chronicling your entire life's work, from your first rendezvous with Watson and Crick to, uh, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. I, surely the best place to start in this discussion would be um, where it all began, your schooling in a... Well, none other than Hartlepool itself. Um, I mean, school, what people have to remember who are listening, young people like you, Sam, is you don't realise school was very different then. I mean, these days, this GCSE level, you can do three separate sciences or dual award, combine them together. But in my day, we hadn't quite firmed up exactly what sciences were. So at GCSE, I actually did seven sciences uh, including wow. astrology and phrenology. Um, it was only a few years later that uh, we realised these weren't sciences at all and they were struck off and we got down to the current kind of uh, biology, chemistry, physics, geology. Which leads us to a, a, a very interesting talking point that actually your work in, in helping decide what science is because as you say there were a multitude of sciences in fact over two dozen to choose from you selected seven but your your work alongside um fisher and and watson actually to, to decide what what a science is what science as a whole is and how did that come about how did that first chance meeting with those two monoliths of science start <laughs> I mean, there were very different days. Uh, we were all working in Cambridge at the time. Um, there was only one 
one public house in the entire city. So uh, it was inevitable that uh, we'd all we'd all meet up on a regular basis, you know, just a just a pub full of of young scientists making their way in the world. It was a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Um, I mean, I should say the hardest thing about uh, this kind of delineation of a of a hard science from a, from a nonsense was that we needed an objective way to do it. You know, you can't choose what is objective in a way that is not in itself objective and um, you know fisher he just wanted to lay out the different subjects in the form of fish guts and then release an arctic skewer and whichever ones it ate must be the real sciences and watson um i mean he just wanted to write a racist diatribe using each of the knowledge of the sciences and uh, whichever one sold the most uh, he would have declared as sciences but i i mean i managed to talk them both out of this sort of nonsense and what we did in the end was we we crystallized each science as a perfect single crystal and then we fired um, a beam of neutrons at them and the ones that absorbed the neutrons we knew were real sciences um, so we used this objective measure to decide what were the the areas of objective measure as it were i'm very proud of it to this day and of course you were you were snubbed for that year's uh... Nobel Prize for Science, but back to back to the most important part of this. We're chronicling your life. It was Kinsey, you know. It's the problem. Sex sells. Always likely to get a Nobel Prize ahead of that sort of, you know, uh, theoretical boundary work. But well, which often doesn't necessarily uh, the crossover between science and sex is uh, less frequent than we might perhaps. Well, you say that again, but young Sam, this is a thing that's really changed about science these days. If I take you back to the the pub in Cambridge, the Cambridge it was called, um, Fisher, Watson, me, all of the scientists there, people, when they look back, they think of us and they think about our minds and they think about our achievements and our medals. But at the time, we really just thought of ourselves as a bunch of extremely attractive people trying to get into each other's pants using equations. <coughs> um, and we can, we can get to uh, your successes there at, at a, very shortly. But no, right now, what um, I want to go back to... Let me stop you for a moment, Sam. Apologies, apologies. I, I realise this whole project is about the Royal Society capturing as much of me as it can before I, you know, shuffle off. Uh, but I'm not Watson. I'm not going to sit here and list... All of my various conquests. A gentleman doesn't kiss and tell, and uh, I'll draw your attention to my the letters after my name. I am legally a gentleman. Okay, uh, those being F F S. Yes, F. fellow of the Fellowship Society. Yes, um, and that's of course why you're here. So, seven sciences. We now we have three sciences eventually, but at, at this at this point in time, we have seven sciences, and you finish your GCSEs. Where do you go next? It was difficult in those days because, you know, you've got to choose where to study. But the criteria were very different than they are now. You know, these days you just look at where your parents or their friends' parents went to university and studied science and you study the same science in the same place. Whereas in my day, like our parents didn't study science. They were too busy tending to the huge estates they'd inherited 
drowned their family line since the Norman Conquest. So it was quite a change. So, I mean, obviously, the, at the time, because I'm an older man than you, at the time there were only two universities. So it was easy to choose with the two universities of uh, University of Cambridge, which you know I attended, and um, University of Hull. So I, I chose Cambridge. Hmm. Although uh, later in your life you would uh, take a brief sabbatical at Hull. So you, you, you study it's at the, Cambridge. It's the best if you're looking for, as I was, the, event, the effects of quantum stagnosis on fish schools. It really is the best. I mean, if the access to the North Sea is absolutely wonderful in terms of the arrays we were installing. I mean, I have a lot of time for them. Not quite so nice for, for swimming, though, <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, so, fish. But you don't start on fish. You, you head to Cambridge and it, immediately you fall in love with the green-tailed frogmouthed crab. How does a scientist go from the green-tailed frogmouth crab to quantum entanglement of fish schools? Well, I think the key thing throughout my career has been the neutron. You remember the neutron was how we decided what was a real science. And it was my fascination with the neutron that first led me to the frogs. Because I don't know if you know this, it's a little known fact. I wrote a paper about it in 58. It's not been very well cited. Those frogs are the single largest sources of neutrons on the planet's surface. I mean, obviously, astronomically, there are more... There's something about these frogs, but just neutrons pour off them in all sorts of directions. Fisher Fisher thought it was some kind of defensive mechanism. He died before, unfortunately, before he could do the maths to prove that. And so it's the neutrons pouring off these things. And we thought to ourselves, what happens if you bring two together? Because traditionally these frogs stay apart, apart from during the moment of coupling, where the neutrons are turned off temporarily by the pleasure. What happens if we bring them together and we let these neutron fields interfere? And that's what led us to the the quantum arrays. Okay. Um, And just for those people out there who aren't necessarily aware, what is a neutron? Very slippery customer, your neutron. Very slippery, uh, known throughout the, the physics world. At the most fundamental level, uh, nuons, neutrons, neutrons, are part of the fundamental building blocks of everything. You know, think about the table in front of you. It's quite a lot of that is neutrons. The glass of brandy in your hand, just a neutron central. But normally these neutrons are very held they're bound together with other things bound like a like a 1987 um yellow pages for the south cambridge region really bound together strongly um but it's the cases where the neutrons go free that i think interested us i mean obviously you've heard of the neutron bomb um mm. something i've tried to avoid exposing myself to um but it's these Best. these strange cases of the 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 slippery 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 still i feel i never quite got my hands on him the slippery neutron but uh you did later manage to get your hands on a, a new kind of particle the new neutron just after you finished your studies on the green-tailed frogmouth crabs um in that brief gap between heading off to study fish schooling, the new new neutron. Where did it come from? What is it? 
how did you study it? What did you find out? I mean, really, the the new neutron, it, it grew out of just people becoming very bored with the old neutron. Um, just the same old experiments over and over again. So what we needed was to, to, to create something with a new twist to, to re-energize the funders and the supporters and get government money pouring back into neutron work. The new neutron was our, our attempt to do that. So we took existing neutrons, we reverse polarized them through the spectro accelerometer. We added a twist of lime. Voila, new new neutrons, a whole new set of uh, of uh, atomic chemistry to explore. What was I? I mean, it feels slightly morbid to be sitting here dictating the not quite my crap last tapes. You know the sort of thing that I mean. Counting down the moments to one's own demise in anecdotes. And in doing so, providing your family with a comfortable life for the foreseeable future. As, of course, we know very well, academia doesn't pay like it used to. Well, you say that, but uh, there have been times in my life where I've been lucky to be just fortuitously uh, rich. I remember the discovery of green lasers that kept me going for a while through the disco boom the late 70s and early 80s made an absolute killing off that but Sam it was a different world and um, one of the challenges I've had throughout my entire career has been my my crippling addiction to uh, online tarot readings I mean sometimes I think that when you spend all of your days deep in the most objective logical rationalist thinking it creates a hole a hole in the center of you and the, the hole can only be filled by paying spiritualists around the world to to read cards and uh, answer your deeper philosophical questions so do you think that there is a place in our world for both science and spirituality absolutely i'm i'm not one of those oh you know those people the the scientists who are say we've squeezed we've squeezed god out we've squeezed the spirit out i've always considered myself a uh, a non-believing but occasionally practicing member of numerous religions and spiritualities and beliefs because you have to remember we were going through a time of an explosion of scientific ideas brought about by the cross-pollination of biology and physics for the first time. And we I took one look and I thought, if these two combined lead to this explosion, what if we combined 30 ways of thinking, 28 of them spiritual, with physics and biology? And that was what led to so many of the... The discoveries, the first time, I mean, you'll you remember in, in 61, um, I won the Royal Academy of Engineering Prize for proving that um, energy could be usefully extracted from ghosts, but only along the south coast of England. Mm. Which, of course, only further aided the, uh, the north-south divide in the United Kingdom, providing a limitless energy supply to the south, while the north was sadly... Left out of the equation. 
Sometimes I feel bad for the the people of Hartlepool. I didn't I didn't spend more time working out whether there was a, a zero point energy involved in some nice hills. Um, but I'm, maybe this is a challenge. Maybe this is a challenge you could take up, young Sam. Uh, something for for younger younger scientific minds to find the the ghosts, not ghosts, but the the ghosts equivalents of of the North. Um, and studies are continuing, <laughs> continuing to explore uh, the, the the potential there for for the generation of energy. But um, so where had we got to? We'd we'd headed up to Hull. After you finished your your sabbatical in Hull, you took a brief momentary break uh, to travel the world and explore the science of other cultures. You went over to uh, most notably the deepest, darkest heart of Africa, a place which you eventually fell in love with. What was it particularly about Africa that really grasped you? Human sacrifice. Um, the process of? Or... You, I mean, you know that uh, science in, in the UK is, uh, it takes place in a very rigid ethical framework. And sometimes some of us who have really explored the more esoteric edges, we need to go uh, somewhere else to um, find a, a, a less of a straitjacket holding us in place. And that, that 18 months I spent working with a warlord in uh, the south of Sierra Leone, um, it really gave me an opportunity to uh, to just just really check out some of the hypotheses that had been in my mind for a long time. It turned out none of them, none of them were true. None of them worked at all. There's no scientific merit to any of the things that we did. Uh, it's one of the reasons why nothing's been published. It's very hard to uh, get nature to run a paper entitled I Ate a Human Heart and it had no scientific merit whatsoever. Um, but it was good to get them ticked off. You know, scientists, we so many questions come to us during our lives and our, our job is to resolve those questions or to see if they turn into another 20 questions, each of which we can get funded by a different government body. Um, and sometimes the questions linger and you, you have to work your way through them. So I, I would say a lot of negative data, but uh, not a lot of time wasted. So your, your fleeting 18-month relationship with the, the warlords of Sierra Leone um, was recapitulated further down the line and you're on your fir- during rather your first exploration of the Zambezi River after you'd heard the potential that there might be some blue piranha still swimming about. I mean, it's really, it's much more Amelia's area, this one. I mean, if you could wait nine months, you could interview her. But uh, I mean, I, as you know, I did go along for the first uh, first six weeks. But um, it was only because, um, I don't know if you know Sam, but... Uh, but like my wife is absolutely fantastic in bed, and I just thought before you, you know, hide yourself away um, in the Amazon basin for a year, it would just be nice to to just uh, again work through some ideas that have come to me. Um, so it was a lovely, lovely few weeks. During the day, I'd sit on the deck of the 
the, the boat that was exploring the Amazon, occasionally sipping a mint julep, and then evenings, just a wild experimental debauchery, um, bringing together all of my, my spiritual learning, my scientific learning, I tell you. If you know a lot about physics and biology, there are places you can go. The intersection of all things biomechanics, which is what you did as soon as you got back to the UK after this brief triste exploring the world. So you've been to Cambridge, you've been to Hull, you finally go and settle in Swainpool. Why Swainpool? What was it about Swainpool that that helped you come up with what would become some of your most famous scientific ideas? Well, one thing you might not know is that in the world of biomechanics, funding is very hard to uh, come by. And the the number one funders of biomechanics work are uh, racehorse owners interested in the, the gait of the racehorse, the arrangement of the jockey on the racehorse. And Swainpool, I mean, it's an incredible place because it's the only place in the entire world where the native foxes have spontaneously learned to ride horses. And so specifically we were measuring the biomechanical effect of having a horizontal four-legged rider instead of a vertical two-legged rider. And obviously um, the foxes themselves were well paid for the work that they did. We would motion capture the fox, motion capture the horse. On Fridays we would have tremendous fun betting, you know, on the races with the best foxes and the horses from that week. Um, I made a a fortune once on uh, Fin Fin Freddy, uh, one of the fastest riding foxes we ever discovered. And these foxes would then, first of all, lead to the publication of your most famous study in nature and another couple in science, as well as your brief correspondence once again only with Watson, because who they, always seems only to Only because up. they begged, you know. Um, I was ready to publish everything in nature, but uh, apparently the science publishing world's very difficult at the moment. So, so science did beg for a couple of my uh, how does a fox ride a horse and... Can they ride them better than humans? Um, you know, will we see a fox-jockey hybrid of fox-key in the future? Um, these issues all up for... I, I mean, I would remind all the major funders that uh, further research is needed in this area. Now, of course, the, the most famous incidents of, of kind of the, the product of your work was uh, the publication of the, the sort of thesis behind this nature paper in the Daily Mail, which was picked up by none other than Queen Elizabeth II. And for the next three years, she decided to attempt to race fox jockeys on top of her prized horse, Secretariat Slusky, at the Grand National. Well, of course, she wanted to do corgis. I mean, what originally attracted her, her Royal Highness to, um, to the work was a fox you know, topologically speaking, is very similar to a corgi, and she was wondering whether she could combine two of her great loves, you know, the others being her, her wonderful husband and uh, a djinn. Um, and so she was really wondered. I, it's one of the great disappointments, I think, for me, that we didn't win the Grand National with this approach. Um, each time the horses fell, fell at the first 
I think what we hadn't thought through was the effect of a, a large, a large crowd of braying aristocrats on the average fox. You know, this is a thing that foxes have really evolved to be extremely afraid of. And um, the effect of that, that wall of, of rah, um, I think, was, was what led to all of our jockeys to bolt. And, of course, understandably so. <coughs> now... Uh, we only have a short moment left, and so I would like to cover your final f- absolute greatest discovery. The discovery of the interaction of neutrons on world leaders at the G7 summit three years ago. I'd never really spent a lot of time in human physiology but uh, I thought it was it was ripe for for those of us who knew a bit about particles to uh, come on in, and I have to say I'm proud of the work that we did. I know it's been extremely controversial. The discovery that pointing a ray of neutrons at somebody from two miles outside of the exclusion zone causes them to wet themselves immediately. Uh, it's been controversial that, that we found that and that we had to test it on so many different people at the G7. Um, you, would, you would see us uh, posting on, on, on our website. It's, uh, it's the Prime Minister of Germany next. The Prime Minister of Germany immediately wets themselves, you know, testing our, our theories. And we, we have had a lot of interest uh, from the military um, thinking of this as an anti-tank technology you know fire it at a tank enough times and the crowd the the crew drown in their own urine um tanks are terrible for the way they they trap waste inside but um obviously we we retain it's one of the few uh, situations in my career where we i really have kept the data secret no no open science for me so that we can keep this out of the hands of the military And, uh, and, well, do you think you'll maintain this closed approach to your science after your death? Because, of course, there's speculation that this technology could be used to facilitate a, a coming together of the right and the left politically unified be- behind one thing, the incontinence of their leaders. We, we <clears throat> now you know from the G7, we did find that uh, it did have a tremendous unifying effect. However... What it unified was all world leaders in condemning and immediately banning this technology. Um, so, really, if we're going to make it work, uh, moon base will be required and a longer range on the neutron beam, somewhere that nobody can legislate us out of existence. Um, so, I, I think it's going to... I mean, really, these days, I feel it's, uh, it's work for other scientists to take on. One of the things looking back on one's career is you you start to think sometimes maybe, maybe I've done enough. Maybe, maybe three Nobel Prizes is enough to, to keep me going. You'll remember I've won, uh, I was in medicine, um, I won uh, chemistry and um, 1996 literature for just a particularly wonderful paper that uh, 
that I that I uh, re-edited from from a lost work of uh, of Richard and uh, Feynman, Jimmy Richard Feynman, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we turned it into a series of haiku um, about the nature of reality, and uh, it was very very lovely of the Nobel Prize Committee to to award me the. I mean, Richard was dead by that point, so we couldn't share it. Um, well, uh, Professor Sir Roger Benson, FFS, that was your sciencey life. Um, Professor Sir Roger Benson, of course, being the only scientist or person to have ever won three Nobel Prizes in three separate categories. And for those of you out there listening, if you want to keep up to date with all of Professor Sir Roger Benson's FFS's work, you can find him over at www.professorsirrogerbensonffs.co.uk. We've been Wow, What a Sciencey Life, and we'll see you next time. It's Tara from me. Bye-bye. Nicely done. A huge thank you to Sam for what was a lot of fun to improvise together. And I'd like to say a very special thank you to uh, the world-famous pianist uh, Bodger Renson um, for that beautiful piano accompaniment, which was in no way just me randomly banging the white keys on a very cheap USB keyboard with no real idea of how to play the piano. I hope you enjoyed it thoroughly. For more from uh, Professor Sir Roger Benson, FFS, FRS, AMS, ARSE, um, just get me drunk sometime and I'll do it. As ever, this episode has been uh, written, recorded, put together, directed and generally mucked about with by me, Steve Cross. Have a brilliant week!